What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. Gonna hit some movies this week, post-holiday. We got Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, the final DC Extended Universe film before all that resets. We got Zack Snyder's Netflix return with Rebel Moon, sci-fi epic. We have Bradley Cooper's Maestro on Netflix's return after five years since he directed A Star is Born. Very exciting. And last but not least, the new rom-com. Anyone But You, starring Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney. Four significant films. Going to dive full into those. Of course, make sure you come back later this week for my best TV shows of 2023. Best movies on the way very soon. Subscribe to youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below. Let me know what's good, and let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Anyone But You, the new R-rated romantic comedy slash sex comedy starring Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney, directed by Will Gluck, who in fact is a rom-com vet, the director of Easy A and Friends with Benefits. And you know, it's just nice to get a studio rom-com again, because we just don't get these movies anymore. Unfortunately, the rom-com has kind of fallen away from in the you know mainstream movie-making sense for many reasons, including the arrival of streaming, audience disinterest, uh, the box office kind of killing uh, these movies' potential, partially because of streaming's effect, many reasons. Honestly, one of the best rom-coms in the last five years was a streaming rom-com. Set it up featuring none other than anyone but use Glenn Powell. And I think Glenn Powell deserves a lot of credit for being in two of the best in recent memory, because I think anyone but you is pretty good. And it's just kind of a nice, warm feeling, this movie. Um, I think a lot of the appeal with this would be those two leads, um, and, and, you know, the kind of behind-the-scenes tabloid, dumbwad nature to this press tour regarding anyone but you. Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney have amazing chemistry uh, together in real life promoting this movie. And, of course, there's a lot of tabloid drama behind uh, whether people think they're together or not. Certainly help sells the film. And I think they're both very committed to anyone but you, especially Glenn Powell, who's very eager in game to make fun of himself and lampoon himself. And he's just, I think, really winning in this kind of situation. And Sweeney, who definitely had her biggest uh, acting turn to date from a dramatic sense earlier this year with the reality winner uh, movie Reality. This is obviously a different speed from that. And of course, a different speed from her breakout role on Euphoria. And I think she's still pretty good in Anyone But You, but Glenn Powell kind of outshines her just a little bit more. He's a bit more capable and adept at handling really snappy and quick dialogue in some of like the more fighting, verbal fighting scenes that you get in anyone but you. Nonetheless, I think they're a good match. At the end of the day, you're watching an R-rated comedy where two hot people uh, hate each other until they realize they're together. Like It's giving you what you want. It's giving you what you signed up for. And I think it executes on that pretty well. You know, the meet-cute in the beginning, the contrived uh, reunion, Later on, after their hookup goes awry in the morning, um, and then by sheer half happenstance, they end up attending the the same uh, wedding. You know, in this with this reunion, I think it, 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 obviously all that's contrived. What you expect from the genre, but it's all pretty capable, pretty uh, believable nonetheless. You're willing to go with it, and as a result, we're going to Australia for a destination wedding at this gorgeous house on the beach. And yeah, you were kind of off to the races, you know. You have Alexandra Ship, who is uh, the sister of Glenn Powell's character's best friend, and she is marrying 
uh, B, Sydney Sweeney's character, B's sister, played by Hadley Robinson. And as a result, the families are coming together. And yeah, I think kind of hijinks ensue. And it kind of has all the things you want. Like, it's not shying away from the fact that our leads are very attractive, nor is really anyone in the cast uh, not very attractive. And there's some really funny humor in this movie, particularly these scenes where various characters in the family are trying to influence and gaslight and lead uh, B and Ben, Glenn Powell's character, Ben, lead them into kind of forming up and being together. And as a result of Ben and B's annoyance with the whole situation, they decide to fake it for the sake of keeping up appearances for the, for the wedding, even though they don't really like each other. And of course, it turns out they do like each other. Shocking. Uh, some funny set pieces involving hiking, uh, falling into the boss, uh, the Australian harbor. Um, the beginning of the movie actually takes place in Boston, the very beginning before we get to Australia, because B is a uh, Boston law student, making this the third movie of this fall, 2023, that had scenes taking place in the Boston in the Boston area, including the holdovers in American fiction. Very random to me that we have three Boston set movies. Nonetheless, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, the greater cast I, I really quite enjoyed. I mean, a big Hadley Robinson fan at this point. She's had a really nice year. Um, it's probably, I think, most um, meta about this is you have uh, Rachel Griffiths and Dermot Mulroney uh, together as the parents of B. And, of course, that is a very meta reference because that's a reunion of My Best Friend's Wedding, which uh, is an inspiration, you could say, for the plot of anyone but you. There's also... A lot of references to Much Ado About Nothing, you know, Shakespeare, and there's actually like uh, references, specific references to lines from that play in this movie. I think um, Brian Brown, the family patriarch, he makes a really strong impression. I think the Australian accent really helps uh, with the tone. Uh, you have uh, Gata, who plays Ben's friend and uh, the brother of Alexander Ship's character, and uh, Gata, the breakout from little dickies show dave he's really funny i think he has a like a fun comedic energy that he brings to anyone but you and yeah in general like the plot really doesn't matter it's just kind of about the vibes and paying things off and i think i mean i was invested in the characters i liked them i think just sweeney and powell they're just very winning uh personalities uh performance of uh, performances presences and it's fun and again at the end of the day it's just kind of checking all those boxes from what you want from a rom-com, what you want from an R-rated rom-com. You know, like the, the sex comedy is even more dormant than the romantic comedy at this point. You know, like we're so chased with how we portrayal, portray and talk about sexuality these days. And the fact that this is a movie that's not afraid to flaunt uh, some of the sexual aspects of its plot, I think, is actually pretty nice. Because, again, we just don't really get that kind of thing anymore that was also something i really appreciated about a joyride from earlier this year in the summer because it wasn't afraid to uh, make sexual references and sexual jokes and things like that so yeah anyone but you i'm curious to what degree of a hit this becomes you know r-rated rom-com not usually something that would be programmed for the holiday box office corridor you know there's a lot of new releases coming out award season releases wonka's hanging around still so we'll see exactly how successful this does. Obviously, it's modestly budgeted, so it's not going to... Uh, it'll be a success no matter what. But I'm curious if like the tabloid nature of it will be able to help it leg out. We'll see. But yeah, let me know. What did you think of anyone but you? Were you invested in Ben and B the way I was by the end? Are you fully on board the Glenn Powell 
rom-com train. To me, he's doing it better than anyone else right now. Let me know. What more do you want to see from Sydney Sweeney coming up? Are you excited for her turn as Spider-Woman and Madam Web this Valentine's Day? We'll see about that. And yeah, for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Rebel Moon, the new sci-fi epic film from Zack Snyder out now on Netflix. Actually, this is Rebel Moon Part 1 of a two-part series. This is Part 1, A Child of Fire. Rebel Moon Part 2, coming April 2024. Uh, Zack Snyder back at Netflix after 2021's Army of the Dead, which I actually liked quite a bit. And uh, Snyder seems to have found a home alongside, of course, his wife and producing partner, Deborah Snyder, at Netflix. They seem to uh, be comfortable there. And their latest is Zack's attempt at making his own Star Wars. He had previously pitched a version of... Uh, an idea he had to Lucasfilm and Disney, and they declined, so he said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. And unfortunately, Rebel Moon, despite seemingly ambitious uh, trappings to it, is big old dud, honestly. I'm a big sci-fi fan, but Rebel Moon really just comes across as a never-ending series of facsimiles of greater sci-fi works and greater film works of the past. It's also lacking in some of the visual imagination that we've associated with Zack Snyder's style in the past as well. Snyder is his own cinematographer this time around, and I would say that's a negative. Uh, this movie does not look too great. There are certain sequences in particular that I think look worse than others. We can highlight those. But overall, this is a really bland film. The story is rote. The world building is very muddy and expository, but also kind of empty and i just don't think uh this really comes together at all despite the fact that it's only at part one like it's not that compelling and yeah you know i think like on its surface there are things i was looking forward to seeing i think number one probably for me is the lead uh cora played by sofia butella i've been a fan of butella for some time i think she's a really capable action performer she hasn't had the best roles more often than not though unfortunately but when you see her in stuff like Hotel Artemis or Atomic Blonde, it's like, oh, wow, like there's a lot there. Like she's good. And unfortunately, her character doesn't get a whole lot to do uh, in Rebel Moon as this uh, runaway from this, um, you know, overall over overarching uh, empire at the center of our galactic story here, the mother world, as we're, we're told. And she has this uh she, she realizes she should save this village she was hiding out on. She had crash landed on, uh, you know, preventing some ultra violence happening on a young girl in, in, in the village. And that kind of sets us off on this, like, getting the gang together type story where Korra will, will rally all these uh, warriors to help defend the village against the Empire, who will surely return in force and be mad. And be mad that she, you know, wipe, wiped a whole garrison and whatnot. And it's like, huh. Okay, Seven Samurai. Sure. You know, evil space empire. Evil empire, you could say. Sure. Those are tropes for a reason. We like those tropes. But it's not done that well, you know? Like, I think that probably the funniest thing to me about this whole movie was the fact that we have both Michael uh, Huisman and Ed Screen in the same movie sharing scenes together. 
of course, that's a very meta thing to me because those are the two actors who portrayed Dario and Horace in Game of Thrones back in the day. Quite funny. Ed Screen as the villain, as this um, admiral uh, character, Atticus Noble, this uh, right-hand man to the the uh, insurgent empire emperor. Pretty good as a villain. We've seen Ed Screen be a villain before. Um, I haven't seen him doing too much lately. It was actually kind of nice to see him. I think he's he's fun at shooting the scenery, and he's costumed and he's styled as like the most typical like space Nazi ever. He looks exactly like a Nazi, like brown coat, and yeah, like he's he's a bad guy, bad dude, and he he's fine as the bad guy in, in all in all. But like a lot of the getting the game together stuff, like we add all these characters. You know, one of them is played by Jaman Hanshu, this uh disgraced. Uh, general and others are played by uh, you have Duna Bay as the cyborg sword master who obviously is a legend from other Korean action movies in the past like that was a nice piece of casting you have Ray Fisher Snyder alum as this uh, rebel leader who they they meet up with Charlie Hunnam probably the best of all these as Kai this mercenary rogue character they encounter early on None of those supporting characters get absolutely anything to do. I mean, I saw remarked upon that, like, for all the talk about Ray Fisher's role in Justice League, Zack didn't exactly give him a whole lot to do either in in Rebel Moon. You know, it's pretty, pretty amusing. All those are pretty stock characters. I think Hunnam does the best at chewing on the scenery he's given, um, and he just has probably the best screen presence of all of them. But... I think ultimately, like we we do, we jump so many locations in this movie, which in theory I think could be fun. But like this movie visually is such a far cry from noted, not liked sci-fi movies such as Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets by Luc Besson, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Like those movies look infinitely better than this. You know, I think they're visuals that probably look cooler on paper, probably look cooler in storyboard form. But when push came to shove on the execution side of things with Rebel Moon, these places look flat. The visuals have kind of like a dust dustiness to them. And it's just it's just not as engrossing as it should be. And I, I think for the most part, there's at least a lot of like, like, there's like detail in some of the places, but ultimately some of these locations are a lot better than others. I made sure to write this one down specifically. When we go to the planet of King Levitica, this like um, cephalopod, octopusy, squiddy, squid type alien figure who had been um, ha- housing, giving safe passage to the rebels hiding out on this planet. When we like fly down to his world, which again, we only spend like five minutes there, but when we fly down to his world, there's like nothing. There's like nothing to it. It's we're basically in blank space. There's like some floating pillars, and it's just kind of like fog, and it's like no, just no detail, you know. And it's like wow, this is clearly filmed on stagecraft technology. You know, the volume made famous by the Mandalorian, clearly filmed in that manner, and it's almost like they forgot to put stuff on the the LED screens they filmed on because this doesn't look like anything. Just looks like a flat strip of land. I don't know. Like, that really stood out to me. You know, other scenes, um, like, I think the, the ending fight at the fuel, the trade depot, fuel depot place, that had a little bit more to it. Probably the village in the beginning is the most um, developed location in the movie. I guess the cantina as well. There's some funny, like, sci-fi, like, elements to this. Like, you have this um, 
alien at the cantina who's like telepathically connected to and speaking through a human like husk that he's using as his voice box when we see ed screen on his ship he has this like octopus tentacle monster like hooking up to him and connecting to him um interesting way at the very end there's like this technology that they can like almost like cpr uh, or defibrillate the brain of a deceased person to like perhaps resurrect them we see that happen in this movie some fun sci-fi elements, I guess you could you could say, but yeah, like I think it just it's it's just flat, like kind of the whole time. It's flat, it's bland, it's vanilla, and this is a script. And like I think the, the core conflict, the core beats, even if they were super familiar, I think this could have been a lot better. But this script is so bogged down with giving you exposition. I mean, the movie begins with Anthony Hopkins voiceover kind of setting the stage for you doing a a data dump on what world we're entering and it is really hard to follow because there's like so much detail to it and we spend these moments throughout the movie where Cora speaks to Michael Huisman's character and she basically just data dumps her backstory about who she was back in her old life with the emperor you know and it's just like you're super bogged down but like these are not like character developing moments these are just like plot like backstory drops on you the character themselves don't have any growth they don't really have any relationships and the movie just doesn't have time to do that because we're spending so much time expositioning you about the past of this 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 land and we're also spending so much time just moving from place to place advancing plot because that's what we're supposed to be doing per this script but like we don't dwell with anything so to me it's just kind of flat and you're not invested in any of the characters at the end. And yeah, I'll watch part two, you know, I'm going to watch Zack Snyder makes a movie. I'm going to watch it to see what, what it's like, but it's not, um, there's just not a lot to this. And I'm quite, quite disappointed with it. And frankly, I think it's a, this is one of the biggest L's on the Snyder resume, I would say, you know, Uh, because he is someone who's been heralded as a visual storyteller, you know, even when, movies perhaps have a polarizing nature to them or feel like they're fundamentally flawed like perhaps sucker punch for example at least he has a point of view at his visuals but like that's not the case this time around and frankly i think the slow-mo action filmmaking that snyder's done in the past he really wears out the welcome on that with rebel moon like the action for the most part is not super good and yeah man like he's supposed to be this visionary and instead, you get this really bland, muddled film. And I don't care if there's deleted scenes for a Snyder Cut version of this. I don't care that there's a part two as well. Like, Dune's getting a part two. You know, Dune is half of a story. And yet, it's it's remarkable, not to mention a technical masterpiece. You know, this is so far beyond that in a, in a bad way. So yeah, Rebel Moon, uh, major letdown. There's just really not a lot to dwell on with it, because I just don't think there's a lot to it. Um, so yeah, big letdown. I'm sure it'll do great on Netflix from a ratings perspective. They're going to put that in front of everyone. It'll be on that top 10. But uh, yeah, I don't see too much to be excited about with this one. Unfortunately, you know, big sci-fi epic, original story, original in quotes. We should celebrate that. We should want that to be uh, happening. But it also needs to be good. And this one wasn't any good. But yeah, let me know. Did you like Rebel Moon Part 1 more than me? Let me know why, and for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Maestro, the new 
biopic film from Bradley Cooper out now on Netflix. Maestro is, of course, the story of Leonard Bernstein, Cooper playing the title role as well as directing the film. Cooper's first film he's directed since A Star is Born way back in 2018. It's been a minute. He got the gang back together again for this. Matthew Libatique back as the cinematographer, same as A Star is Born. Cooper worked with Josh Singer, acclaimed, famed screenwriter on this play, uh, on the screenplay. And Maestro had actually been, you know, about six years in the making on the Cooper side of things after Steven Spielberg approached him and wanted to kind of pass the torch of making the Leonard Bernstein biopic onto Cooper. And Cooper, I think, obviously really elevated himself in Hollywood with A Star is Born on the strength of obviously an amazing performance from him as Jackson Maine, but also an incredible directorial effort for his debut directorial feature. And Maestro continues this trend where Bradley Cooper is now one of the most intriguing and ambitious filmmakers we have in Hollywood. And that alone, I think, deserves just so much appreciation. The fact that he's also an amazing and committed actor and also a really fun uh, celebrity, very committed Hollywood person. Uh, I think all that's great. I love Bradley Cooper. I am very invested in his career. And I liked Maestro a lot. I think this is an ambitious movie. It takes some swings. Uh, it has some interesting priorities, but at the center of it all is amazing technical craft and vision for a movie. It is not one of the staid, uh, hokey, stereotypical biopic treatments. This is very much something that kind of jumps across time versus trying to chronicle everything about the person's life somehow into two hours. It is, I think, very specific in what its aims are. And Cooper, again, uh, is kind of mesmerizing in the lead role. And the role of Leonard Bernstein, I think, makes a lot of sense to get the biopic treatment. Of course, Leonard Bernstein, starting out as the first American-born conductor to lead a major American symphony orchestra when he uh, kind of partially by chance is able to take over the New York Philharmonic, but ultimately became one of the most significant, influential, and also most famous figures in the New York music scene in the 20th century. I think famously, you know, working on the scores and, and compositions to work such as On the Waterfront and West Side Story. But really, as his fame uh, continued, he, I think, was almost like the face of like classical and like um, traditional technical music in America and became a very famous figure, very famous, you know, New York culture figure and continued, I think, to, you know, to, you know through the history, continued to influence a lot across the decades, you know, after his a star and his legacy was long established. So it makes plenty of sense to make a movie about Bernstein. You know, coming into this movie, uh, there was some controversy, some polarization anyway, around the fact that Cooper wore a prosthetic nose to portray Bernstein. I would say that it does not come across as uh I think obtrusive or like like overdone in any way when you watch the movie, to be honest. And also I think if, if you want to think about that more, there's a great piece by Mark Harris on Slate regarding this. I would say read that really good perspective from, from a fellow Jew. Anyway, uh, moving past that. Yeah, uh, Maestro, man, like there's just like I think a lot of key like key sequences with this movie that really, um, I think, drive it drive it home for me. And the thing, the talking point with Maestro to this point 
Um, and this is a movie that you know we expect to be Best Picture nominated, Best Actor, Best Actress, uh, Carrie Mulligan as uh, Leonard Bernstein's wife, Felicia Montalegri, perhaps a uh, screenplay nom as well. But yeah, it will be there at the Oscars. But the thing is, the take the, the the talking point has been whether the the film maestro like amounts to something in the end, or does it does it leave you feeling completely you know um, something at the end. And heck, I mean, there's there's funny jokes to be made about the fact that we just got a high-profile movie about a composer in Tar last year. Of course, that would be a fictional composer. Nonetheless, did Todd Field and Kate Blanchett uh, eat Bradley Cooper's lunch in a certain respect? Perhaps. You know, I think Tar is a better movie, for sure. Check my review on that. Nonetheless, I think that Maestro, even if it doesn't, like, have a satisfying conclusion or, like, statement... I just think that there's just so many like dynamite aspects to this movie, not to mention the craft the entire time is is like impeccable that I can't help but be really appreciative of the movie, even if you know maybe certain aspects of it can make you feel cold. Nonetheless, I mean, just kind of sitting with Bernstein, I think if anything, the critique can be like we spend a lot of time with uh, Felicia and Carrie Mulligan's great in the role. I mean, she's she's great in everything. Nothing surprising there, but. We spend a lot of time with Felicia and 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 her relationship to Bernstein, specifically her her feelings being in a relationship with a man who is so lauded and so esteemed that it's almost like an energy sapping thing to be in that orbit at all times, and that's doubled doubled up by the fact that Bernstein was not a faithful uh, husband. And he was having affairs both with men and women, and uh, was being less discreet about that. And like, it, it's it's interesting that the movie really wants to ground itself in how that infidelity, how that relationship, was like kind of at the core. Meanwhile, you're watching the movie, and it's like you know, Bernstein, he's so charismatic, and Cooper is so compelling when he's charismatic. I mean, they're all the early scenes. We start off in like 1943, young Bernstein. Uh, you know, young like Bradley Cooper without any like real like facial prosthetics to make himself look older. Um, you understand why the guy is the life of the party. He's just so charismatic and so compelling. And the movie, you know, kind of skips across uh, generations or, or, or time. You know, we we jump across a few decades and we spend a lot of time with Bernstein with gray hair. And the thing is, it's like I would like to just spend more time basking in the greatness. You know, the kind of like, this is, this is, at the end of the day, this is a great man biopic, right? And that, that's why we, we have this movie, because this is legitimately great man with an impeccable legacy. And yeah, like a lot of great men, has some deep character flaws personally. I'm, it's just interesting that like the perspective of the wife is actually so influenced uh, in the movie, even though despite the fact that most of the scenes you get with Felicia are also scenes that also feature Lenny. Whereas Lenny has tons of scenes without his wife in the movie. So I don't know. It's kind of like a mismatch of like what you see on the screen and what the screenplay is like trying to drive home. That seems to be kind of the main talking point. And I totally understand it. I can totally see it. But again, like I, I'm very willing to look past that. Again, like, man, there are just some moments, man. Like, uh, and just kind of jumping through the plot. But like when they have the, the fight on uh, Thanksgiving Day, they're on their like immaculate like apartment on the parade route in new york and like like the dialogue 
between those two. It's so fast and just like like listening to Felicia just tell like Lenny the why he's fucking up so much after he comes comes to see the family late on Thanksgiving morning. Like that scene is kind of wowing you, right? I also have to say, like, I think the scene where uh, Lenny gets approached by Felicia that uh, one of his their kids, one of their daughters, played by Maya Hawk, has heard rumors at school about Lenny's affairs, and like she doesn't want Felicia doesn't want Lenny to tell their daughter about them. So he ends up approaching his daughter to sit her down to ease her mind. And tells her about how people are always jealous of him, and this is just a sign of jealousy. And this is like really kind of like unsettling scene, which almost undoubtedly raises more suspicions in his daughter about who her father really is. But also like seeing so I think forthright on screen in front of you, this man who's so in conflict with who he was and who he is, you know, as a closeted man, and just kind of unwilling to accept uh, what that is in front of everyone. And I think that, that that scene was really inc- incredible. Um, some of the, the the facial acting, like the the, the the mannerisms, performance you get from Cooper, um, just that presence, I think really really sings, you know. And then of course, like the the directing itself, the the, the uh, conducting of the orchestra. I mean, God, I, I would watch C- Cooper looks so compelling and so confident and so accurate and real doing it and you see it a few times but one of those uh probably the the highlight perhaps the highlight of the whole movie i think one of the best scenes of the whole year is when leonard bernstein did did the uh uh, one of the one of the classic symphony symphonies in the past at a uh, english cathedral and it's um being held inside the cathedral and that is like a really long kind of swept scene the camera kind of jumps around a little bit but you just watch Bernstein just giving it everything and like you see like like he's sweaty and you see the sweat dripping down his brow as he continues to just like round this orchestra through the symphony and like you know you see him glancing over at Felicia and they basically reconcile at the end of this and I think just completely wowing like moving scene and it's also so propulsive because I think the music of it all and the fact that you're watching Bernstein like physically articulate the music as he's conducting, like that—that's just dynamite shit, man. Like, no, not a lot of people can pull off uh, scenes like that. And I mean, that—that that I think really blew me away, to be honest. Also, some interesting flourishes, like with the movie, you have um, early on, especially like there's these moments in the early courtship of Felicia and Lenny, where like next thing you know. Uh, you're you're kind of swept into like almost like a dream s like state, and you're watching this musical production on stage. We see a lot of like wipes from one setting to completely new settings. Pretty fun, pretty interesting. As we continue to jump across time and space early on, um, the exposition also is pretty. I think interesting. Like it's on the nose, but it's I think it's done well. Like this type of biopic that's not going to dwell too much in any individual moment. You have like I believe it's the Ed Sullivan show, um, some in other interview aspects where like kind of get data dumped on the audience about Bernstein's accomplishments and his accolades and his uh, steps in his career to that point. And if anything, it it'd be fun if this movie spent a little bit more time like taking a pause and spending time with like him as the musical genius. 
because it really kind of moves past that, just kind of accepted, and that's how he's treated by everyone in the film. But you don't spend a whole lot of time with him as like the composer, the uh, the genius mind, musical mind, as much. And when you do see him, like at the end of the movie, where he's like helping a uh, young aspiring conductor get something down with his group. On one hand, it's there to highlight that he was still active in the arts community at an older age after his wife had passed. But really, it's there to highlight that he also was someone who would philander with younger students in the club afterwards. And it was someone who commanded great power, but also perhaps wielded that influence in an inappropriate manner. You know, so I think it's a movie and a movie with priorities that have a lot of um, contradictions and differing priorities, much like, I guess, Bernstein himself. And, you know, through two movies, you can kind of see Bradley Cooper putting himself in these movies about the troubled artist, the artist who, like Bernstein says this a few times in the movie, where it's like, I feel like you haven't accomplished anything. You haven't done enough. You haven't made enough work. And you have to feel like Bradley Cooper, a guy who became a director later in his career, clearly is feeling that about himself, you know? So I really can't help but appreciate everything that's gone on with Maestro uh, to get us to this point. And I think it was a, a really triumphant movie, you know? And even if I think some of the Felicia stuff um, is perhaps a bit distracting or a bit repetitive, I guess you could say. It sounds a little harsh. On the other hand, when she does get the, the cancer treatment and the movie kind of flips and Lenny comes back into the fold, that is incredibly heavy and affecting stuff. And, you know, watching all that go through until she eventually succumbs to cancer, um, it's hard to deny the impact that has on the movie as well. Um, and kind of communicating the, the sadness that Lenny was carrying later in life. Uh, yeah. Also, I, I couldn't help but love at the end when you have Bernstein kind of rolling up to his house and he's blasting or... or He's either blasting in his car radio, or it's literally just a needle drop, where you hear the REM uh, lyric drop from End of the World, uh, Leonard Bernstein. Like It's like so on the nose, and almost like takes you out of the movie, but I laughed, because it's just kind of a funny, on, uh, obvious reference. But yeah, Maestro. Uh, it's a banger. And Bradley Cooper, I hope he continues to direct and does all kinds of stuff. And it's a guy who clearly wants praise and recognition for his, his art, and I'm happy to give it to him. But let me know, how do you feel about Maestro? Uh, would you feel about the movie's priorities? Did you like how it split up its time and what it tended to focus on? Let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, the 15th and final DC Extended Universe film. As we know, DC at Warner Bros. Discovery is ending their previous film continuity. James Gunn and Peter Safran's new DCU vision kicking off in earnest in 2025 with Superman Legacy. Aquaman 2 is the last of four uh, DCEU kind of holdover films, films that kind of got released in limbo with this plan uh, already in motion. WB just kind of had to get these movies out and they were moving on and we kind of knew it. And as a result, these movies have Disappointed at the box office, partially because they haven't been very good, almost consistently, and also because there's no audience investment in these stories, because we know we're throwing all of this away. So Aquaman 2, I think, was held up coming in as something with perhaps a bit more potential, I suppose, than, say, Shazam 2 or The Flash or Blue Beetle, just because Aquaman 1 was relatively well-received when it came out. 
at the end of 2018, and also happens to be the highest grossing DC Comics film ever with $1.15 billion, you know? And, you know, it's been five years since the most successful DC movie finally gets its sequel, very uh, on brand for how DC has gone. And unfortunately, Aquaman 2 is a big step back from its predecessor, just like Shazam 2 was, just like Wonder Woman 1984 was. You know, Aquaman The Lost Kingdom really, to me, just feels like a pretty sloppy film. Like, it's just kind of a mess, and it's self-contained, you know, which which is which is nice. Um, it actually kind of has a conclusive-ish ending to the Aquaman story, but really doesn't rise above the formula in any way, and I think is visually less interesting than the first movie, which at least had pretty fun and compelling underwater CGI visuals. That is less true to uh, right now with Aquaman 2 somehow. And yeah, it's just not really that compelling. I, honestly, for a two-hour movie, I thought it, it dragged. I thought it was a bit slow. And I think just the central conflict of the movie just is really half-baked and uninteresting. And I'm kind of happy that the DCEU is just being wiped away because these movies have not been consistent enough. And frankly, we're on... We're on the strength of five duds in a row for the most part because we can go back to the last movie of 2022, Black Adam. Certainly adds to the trend. You know, I actually enjoyed The Flash for for what it was, and I think that's the strongest DC movie we got this year. Aquaman two, I actually think is probably the worst of them all. And yeah, let's kind of get into why that is. You know, I think, huh? I mean, man, like. We knew this movie was recut. We knew this movie was going through some troubles. You know, at one point, we were going to see Ben Affleck's Batman. At one point, it was actually going to be Michael Keaton's Batman. <laughs> Turns out, you get no Batman, which I think was probably for the best. But, you know, there was reports that Amber Heard's Mira was, uh, re- was cut. There was a scene of her fighting Black Manta. There was a kind of love scene with uh, Aquaman. Those scenes are cut. You're not in the movie. Overall, Mira is largely sidelined, which... Uh, has been a huge talking point given everything that has happened with Amber Heard in the public eye in terms of you know the lawsuit with uh, Johnny Depp, of course. So you can't you have that baggage coming into it, and yeah, I think if there's one strength to Aquaman too, it's probably the uh, kind of buddy cop stuff we get like at times between Arthur Curry, Aquaman, played by Jason Momoa, and his half brother Orm played by Patrick Wilson. When they're together, they're actually pretty fun chemistry. It's a complete riff of like the Thor-Loki uh, brotherly dynamic, you know, the villainous brother turned ally. Um, so obvious, in fact, that Aquaman actually calls Orm Loki at one point in the movie. And what, they're actually pretty in- amusing together. And I think Patrick Wilson's like self-seriousness in the Orm role is pretty fun. Um, the issue is that the conflict with this is just really tough, man. Like, we get Yahya Abdul-Mateen back as Black Manta. You know, he kind of escapes uh, at the end of the first movie, helped by the scientist character played by Randall Park. And those two together actually pick back up with them in the very beginning of Aquaman 2. And before we know it, Black Manta is consumed by this, uh, you know, magical, demonic... Uh, trident from the titular Lost Kingdom that's been, you know, locked away, uh, you know, for re- reasons, reasons, don't get into the details there. And as a result, like, all agency 
that Black Manta could have had as someone who hates Aquaman for killing his father in the first movie. All that's sapped away because Black Manta just basically becomes possessed by this uh, ancient evil. And it, it kind of sucks because, like, that, like, motivation is so hard to grasp because it seems like he's possessed but not fully possessed. And as a result, what he's going to do is he's going to steal all these ancient fuels from ancient Atlantis and burn them up to affect climate change. But why is he doing that? Like, like he's going to destroy the whole world just to get back at Aquaman? Like, that whole, like, part of the conflict I found really confusing. And it gets to this point where you realize there's, like, 30 minutes left in the movie and we just heard the phrase the Lost Kingdom said in the movie. And then we actually go to this underwater, like, under Antarctica, you know, like, locked away Seventh Kingdom of Atlantis. And we get, like, some incredibly obvious, like, Lord of the Rings, like, visage, where, like, the ancient Lost Kingdom, Necris Kingdom king looks exactly like Sauron, but the way he's actually been communicating with Black Manta throughout the movie, they re- reminiscent of the uh, Men Under the Mountains ghosts from Lord of the Rings, even though it kind of looks like Sauron, someone else from Lord of the Rings, and it's like, what the fuck? And then when we, when we get to Necris, it's like, just like fucking Mordor, <laughs> and I was brought back to Lord of the Rings a lot, somehow. Um, wasn't expecting that. And uh, I was like so thankful that the uh, the evil leader of Necris doesn't actually get fully resurrected and gets killed very quickly at the very end. Because I was like, man, we just don't have time. Like the movie was dragging. I just need the movie to end at that point. But like, it's just such an uncompelling conflict. And I think Manta is really just kind of lackluster as 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 an antagonist, to be honest. Um, the sonic weapon stuff, I guess, was cool, I suppose, but. We spend so much time above uh, ground again, like the first Aquaman. The first Aquaman somehow, for having so much CG, the CG for the above uh, ground stuff, when they go find the old kingdom, you know, buried beneath the Sahara, and you're watching Amber Heard and Jason Moa run out in the desert, that was the shit that looked worse than all the underwater, completely unreal imagery, right? It's kind of the same case once again. It's just that the underwater stuff doesn't even look as good this time. But we spend all this time with Orm getting busted out of prison once again in the desert. That's a set piece that's like, it's like broadly amusing, but it's kind of repetitive. It doesn't really build up to too much. I thought it was just okay. And then I think slightly better is when they're kind of like in the jungle, like island setting, and they find all these like gigantism affected flora and fauna, and they're running away from like giant bugs and stuff and carnivorous plants. That was at least a bit more interesting to me. But I really would love if, like, these movies were somehow, like, able to really capture the underwater stuff. Like, heck, I think, like, the brief underwater moments you got in, like, uh, Justice League, Snyder's Justice League, that stuff I actually thought looked looked pretty good. But this is just, like, I don't know, it's kind of flat. And, like, there's some, like, cool, like, kind of, like, horror moments, like, early on when there's that, like, tentacle that's, like, going after Randall Park. Like, and shout out to James Wan, you know, he's horror bonafides. He can pull that kind of stuff off. But overall, it's just like, it's just kind of a really lackluster story. And the conflict is just really lackluster. And, you know, like the stuff with Momoa and, and uh, Aquaman and Mira having a, a child who they don't even give a name to, like, it's, it's just kind of tacked on. It's like not, 
I don't know. It just doesn't feel that special. And yeah, like Orm getting his redemption, like that's earned. That's nice overall. But like, I don't know. I just, it just kind of suffered from a lack of imagination to me. And the real, the middle of the movie, like really struggles, I'd say. And yeah, kind of DCU kind of going out on a whimper. Um, but this was a lame duck movie, like the last ones before it. So it is what it is, I guess. And yeah, that's it for Momoa's Aquaman. You know, I thought overall he was pretty good for a while. He's one of the lightest and I think most dependable aspects of the DCEU from his various appearances. But overall, uh, this has been a very troubled time as we've talked about at length. And I'm looking forward to the reset. As far as Momoa potentially returning to DC in the future, he's reportedly been in talks about portraying Lobo. Um, I'm open to the idea. I don't know. Like, I, I enjoy Momoa when he's good, you know, and I think he was actually pretty good in Fast X this year as, as the villain, Dante. I liked him quite a bit. Um, Aquaman, I don't know. He felt like he was kind of, like, overly aloof, and especially in this second one. So, I'd be... And, on the other hand, though, think about his role in Dune. I thought he's absolutely tremendous. Like there, there, there's a really like awesome like action performer in Jason Momoa when he's doing it right. So I think him doing Lobo could have great, great return as long as he's able to differentiate it from his portrayal as Aquaman. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. We'll see. Um, I don't expect that to be anytime soon. Uh, that, 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 and a movie with Lobo or anything like that. So yeah, Aquaman too. Uh, kind of stinks. Honestly, it's one of the worst DCU movies. It is what it is. And uh, I'm kind of happy for the break. We know next year we'll get Joker Part 2 at the very end of the year. And HBO will be releasing the Penguin spin-off series off of the Matt Reeves Batman film. That still has to finish some filming post-strikes, but we should be getting that next year. And then 2025, Superman Legacy from James Gunn and also Batman Part 2 with Reeves and Pattinson. So won't be too long for DC, but I think a break with just one movie next year is probably be help, helpful for the reset, helpful for the comic book genre to help reset. Uh, obviously, Marvel's going through a tough time, too, as we've been talking about. So, yeah, uh, we're moving on. But let me know how you feel about Aquaman 2. Did you like it more than me? Let me know why. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week, later this week. Best TV shows of the year coming soon. Best movies of the year as well. And yeah, make sure you come back. Lots of stuff to get into in 2024. It's going to be roaring with tons of new stuff very soon. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. See the links below. Let me know what's good. And I'll see you next year. And-